don't know if you ever thought about this, but one of the worst ways that you can lead someone to Jesus is actually telling exactly what it means to follow Jesus. Uh, and I say this because following Jesus is not an easy thing. Following Jesus comes with a cost. And so a lot of times when we are sharing the gospel, when we want to lead someone to Christ, we want to highlight the fact that they are loved by Jesus. We want to highlight the fact that Jesus made a sacrifice, paid the price for their sins, that there's an open invitation for them to follow Jesus. And then after listing out all those benefits, all the good things about following Jesus, we, we kind of just invite them to follow Jesus without mentioning the cost. It's kind of like those, those um, advertisement for drugs, right? It's like, hey, this incredible pill, this magic pill is going to give you the rest that you deserve. It's going to give you the sleep that you crave for. Just take this pill, and then your life is going to change completely. And what happens is at the very end, they're required to put this according to the law, but they would say, by the way, side effects are that it might cause headache, nausea, and possible death. And it's like... Or it's like when you're signing a contract, the contract is about 100 pages, like, and, and you know what you're, you, you know you want this, like, it's an agreement, and you know that you have to sign it, but you're too lazy, because, like, I mean, they make this contract so long, it's like, okay, I, I think I'm signing up to, to buy a house, I buy it to, to, to uh, agree to this rent, and then you sign it, and later you realize in the fine print, it's not bolded, it's not, like, enlarged, it's in the fine print that you realize that you definitely just let your life into someone else's hands. It's like you are tricked. After talking about the benefits, the beauty of, of this agreement, later on you realize, oh, that was, there was actually a cost. Like, it's actually, you know, demanding me to do something. Um, and so I think a lot of times uh, we, when we share the gospel, we want to highlight the benefits, the beauty of following Jesus We have them sign up for church. We have them get baptized. And then later on, they find out, oh, wait a second. Like, the cost is real. Like, this is no joke. Well, one thing that's good about Jesus is he's very upfront. That he doesn't hide all the the things that might be difficult or, or demanding. In Luke 9, Jesus asks his disciples, who do people say I am? And disciples finally say that, Jesus, you're it. You're the Christ. You're the promised one. You're the one that we want to follow. And they're able to say this because Jesus has demonstrated his authority, his power over waves and winds. He demonstrated his power over sin and sickness, over demons and diseases, and even death itself. And so with confidence, they know who they're following. And they're like, okay, Jesus, he is not just a godly man. He is God in the flesh. He is the God man. And so we want to follow you, Jesus. That's, that's what they say. But Jesus, before he takes these disciples into his hands, before he allows them to follow him completely, he reminds them, but yes, there's, there's a reason that you ought to follow me because who I am, but there's actually a cost, a clear cost that you have to pay. And the cost is that you need to, you need to deny yourself, you need to die to yourself, and you need to take up your own cross and, and follow me daily. It's not just... Once in every while, but it's on a daily basis. You have to deny and die to yourself. Jesus is very upfront, honest about the cost of discipleship. And it's not just there. It's like time after time after time. Like, if you want to bury the dead, like, no, you can't follow me. That's what he says. Hey, let let the dead bury the dead. Or later on in chapter 14, what he's going to say is, if you want to follow me, you have to hate your family. 
that you have to hate your own self in order to follow me. Like, he's making some radical statements, statements that you normally don't make if you want people to follow you. And yet, he's being, being very upfront, very clear, because there is a real cost that comes when you follow Jesus. He knows that the way of discipleship is not an easy pathway, that it's a cost that we ought to pay. But this is what I love about Jesus. Although there's a clear cost, Jesus also reminds us that there's a clear reward. Following Jesus might require you to lose your life, but in return, you will gain eternal life. Following Jesus might cause you to deny yourself, but it's going to make you more like Jesus Christ. Um, earlier in chapter 9, you know, the disciples, they, they want to be great, right, in God's kingdom. And, and they're asking Jesus, how can we be great? And Jesus says, well, if you want to be great, you have to be the least. You have to serve the least. You have to accept the least. But it doesn't say that it ends there because the least in God's kingdom is great. So the reason why you should be the least is so that you can actually be great. And so when Jesus says, hey, come follow me, he's not just inviting us to, to walk this pathway to the cross. He's leading us to the pathway of resurrection. Now, you can't get to the resurrection apart from the cross, so he has to mention about the cross. But at the end of the day, he's saying that there is glory at the end. Although it is difficult, there is glory at the end. So is following Jesus hard? Absolutely. Is it hard, difficult, costly? Absolutely. However, is it worth it? Absolutely. And this is what we see in chapter 10 when Jesus sends out the 72. Um, he makes it very clear once again. He doesn't say, hey, this is going to be an easy trip. Just have some good conversations, meet some nice people, and then you'll be fine. No, he doesn't say that. What he says is this. I'm sending you like sheep among the wolves. This is a difficult mission. This is a dangerous mission. And this is a demanding mission. Like, you're not going to have anything in your possession. Like, you shouldn't speak to anyone on the road. Just get to the place that you need to go because people are going to pull you left and right, distract you. And even when you get to the place that I, I told you to go, they might receive your message. They might reject your message. Don't, don't just expect people to, to welcome you with open hands. You will be rejected. That's what Jesus says. And so he reminds the disciples time after time that following Jesus, embracing his mission is demanding. It is difficult. It, it, it is something that we ought to think of. But I love what happens next because in verse 17, when they return, notice what it says. After they go on this difficult demanding, dangerous mission. It says in verse 17, the 72 returned with joy. They returned with joy. And that's really the main point of today's passage. Those who are willing to share in the life of Jesus will also share in the joy of Jesus. Those who are willing to share in the life of Jesus will also share in the joy of Jesus. Yes, there is future glory for those who follow Jesus, but there is also present joy that comes when you embrace the life and the mission of Jesus Christ. And all of that cost and all of that danger, even if you're willing to lay down your life for Jesus, if you're willing to go all the way for Jesus, what Jesus says is this, there is going to be joy. And, and no one makes this more clear than Luke, especially in his gospel. Like Luke is big on joy. I don't know if you noticed this so far. If you just think about what we talked about so far, back in chapter 1, this is when Jesus is still in Mary's belly. And, and 
Mary goes to Elizabeth, who is pregnant with John the Baptist. And do you remember what Elizabeth said when she first saw Mary? It says that in Luke 1.44, Elizabeth says, The baby in my womb leaped for joy. Like, this is a baby that is in his, it's not yet born in, in the mother's womb. And yet, when this baby, John the Baptist, met Jesus, he leaped for joy. Jesus brings joy. And in the very next verse, it says, in Luke chapter 147, it says, Mary begins to sing, My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Here we have a teenage girl who, who got pregnant unexpectedly, doesn't know what to do with her life, and yet she says, I magnify the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Jesus brings joy. In chapter 2, an angel appears to the, good, the shepherds, and, and what does the angel say? Well, let me tell you, I have good news of great joy. The good news comes with great joy. Again, Jesus brings joy. And this is, this is really clear in chapter 4 as well. When Jesus begins his public ministry, he goes to the synagogue, he opens up Isaiah 61, and he begins to read Isaiah 61, and he says, the scripture is fulfilled today. This is what it says in Isaiah 61. It says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, to open the prisons for those who are bound, to proclaim the years of the Lord's favor. I love this part. To give comfort to all who mourn, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, a garment of praise instead of faint spirit. So when Jesus touches the lives of the broken, the sick, the needy, the captive, the result, is that there is praise and rejoicing. Jesus brings joy. And in Luke chapter 6, you go to the Beatitudes, and this is really the, what the kingdom is about. Blessed are you. Blessed are you. The word blessed means happy, really. Uh, a little translation could be happy are the poor. Happy are the, those who suffer. Happy are those who reject. Why? Because they have Jesus in the midst of all their struggles. Jesus came to bring joy and and I love it because in today's passage too as the disciples are obedient to the calling of Jesus as the, as they are embracing the life of Jesus and the mission of Jesus demonstrating the power and the authority of Jesus in such a way that brings glory to Jesus the result is that not only do they do good for others they receive this incredible joy inside of them and I think this is a very important principle by the way um, that joy comes through obedience, right? It's when the disciples, when they were willing to obey and embrace the life of Jesus and the words of Jesus, that's when they actually experience the joy of Jesus. I think that's very important. Even Jesus himself, he found joy in obeying the Father, in doing the will of the Father. And so if you're wondering, why is there joy lacking in my Christian life? Could it be that there's obedience that is lacking? That there's a lack of understanding of God's word and living according to God's word that we just don't find joy? That we're just living the life of, of, of a Christian just however we want to live. And the Bible tells, reminds us that we share in the life of Jesus in order to share in the joy of Jesus. If you want the joy of Jesus, the joy of the Lord, then you have to live 
for the Lord. And so I just want to point out two reasons why we can be joyful when we follow Jesus. Two reasons why we can be joyful when we follow Jesus. Number one is this. We rejoice in our eternal security. We, we rejoice in our eternal security. And I get that from verse 17 to 20. It says this. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Now, maybe you just glance over that. Uh, that's a very significant statement. I have no idea what that means. Uh, that's one of those verses that people would actually write dissertations uh, for their PhD. They would do research and and form all these different opinions uh, to know exactly, is this talking about the original time where Satan fell, was cast out from heaven? Does it mean that every time we share the gospel that somehow Satan is falling uh, down and, 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 and lightning is striking? What does this mean? Like, I just don't know. I just, I know that it's awesome though. Like, I'm glad that it's Satan falling down from heaven, not us, right? We don't know to what extent, but it shows us that Jesus has ultimate authority even over the enemy that he has ultimate authority even over the evil one, that the demons are not just the issue. It's the devil himself. He himself is subject to the son. I think that's what Jesus is saying. Hey, just don't rejoice in these little victories with demons. Just know that Satan is a defeated enemy as well. So um, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. It says in verse 19, Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. In other words, the authority that I have given you, the position that I have given you is awesome. It is, is powerful and the disciples are thrilled. Uh, by the way, I think it's kind of funny that it's, they're rejoicing in the fact that they can cast out demons. Because if you think back, um, when they came back from the mountain of transfiguration, three of them went to the mountain, nine of them, were, they were left and the very moment that Jesus returned, uh, there was a father that came to Jesus and said, hey, my son is demon-possessed. He needs some help. And by the way, your disciples weren't able to help him at all. Like, and so they're already insecure about demons. They're like, oh, man, we failed once. And later on, at the end of chapter 9, that's why when there's this other guy who's casting out demons in Jesus' name, they're like, hey, John says, should we do something about this guy? Because he's not part of us. I think internally he was insecure. Like, this guy's able to cast out demons, not us. But finally, in chapter 10, as they go out with the authority of Jesus, it's like it happened. Like we can finally cast out demons. They listen to us. Like the name of Jesus is powerful. So they're celebrating in their success, in their power, the authority that they displayed. But this is what it says in verse 20. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you. But rejoice that your names are written in heaven. In other words, don't just rejoice in the success and in the power that was displayed. Rejoice in your eternal security. And I just want to clarify a couple things. I don't think Jesus is kind of downplaying what happened. I don't think he's saying it is a bad thing to rejoice in the fact that demons left people. I think, no, I think that's a big deal. Um, I do think he's trying to kind of point something at the pride of the disciples humble them, reminding them that, hey, that's not the ultimate goal. But I think the main reason why Jesus brings this up at this particular moment is this. Not every mission ends like this. 
when we do ministry, when we do the work of Jesus, yes, it'll be great if it's always successful. It'll be great if demons always tremble at the feet. It'll be great if every time we pray, that sickness is gone. But Jesus also knows that that's not always the case. And so he's reminding his disciples, hey, in ministry, even in Jesus' ministry, sometimes he's accepted, sometimes he's rejected. Like, there are times when it seems like he's defeated, especially on the cross. But he's reminding the disciples, don't define your happiness based on your success. Find your happiness and your eternal security, how you are saved, forever saved, because of me. And your name is in the book of life. Your names are written in heaven. It's in the book of life. We see this in the book of Revelation time and time again. There is a book of life that, that is written by the Lamb. Through his blood, our names are written. Those who believe in the Lamb, which is Jesus Christ, the Lamb who is slain but also exalted, uh, those who believe in Jesus will not be disappointed at the end. And so your eternal security is what matters. And I love this. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he's one of the most famous preachers in history. And later in his life, he got cancer. And so one of his, his friends and former associates, he came to him with this question. So how are you managing the pain? It's not just the physical pain, but you've been on the radio for so, so, so many times. Like You've been preaching multiple times a week. You wrote books. Uh, you've been influencing all these different people before there was Instagram. And, and so uh, like, and they're wondering, like, you've been such a successful person, a preacher, a minister. Like, are you okay? Like, you're just lying in bed. And Martin Lloyd-Jones, he, he quotes Luke 10, 20. He says, do not rejoice that the Spirit's fall before you, but rejoice that your name is written in heaven. The same words were spoken by Tim Keller before he died as well. Like, our eternal security brings us eternal joy. We might have success in this life because of the authority of Jesus. Sometimes you might literally lose our lives because we were willing to follow Jesus to the very end. Based on the success of this world, it might be up and down, but our eternal security is something that we can always look to when we follow Jesus. Rejoice in our salvation. We rejoice in the fact that nothing can take away the joy that we have in our salvation, in Jesus Christ. The ultimate joy for the, for the follower is that we are known by God, that we are loved by God, that we were forgiven by God, accepted, and that we have a place in heaven. Notice that Jesus saw Satan fall down from heaven like lightning, and yet our names are written in heaven. Like, do you see the contrast? Like, the one who wanted to exalt himself, Satan, is cast down. But the one who is willing to humble himself and call upon the name of Jesus is exalted and remembered in heaven. So we rejoice in our eternal security. We rejoice in our salvation. But it's not just only our salvation but we rejoice in the God of our salvation. I think that's the second point. We rejoice in our eternal security, but we also rejoice in God's gracious will. We rejoice in God's gracious will. Look at what it says in verse 21. It says this, In that same hour, he, Jesus, rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, So we have now, before it was the disciples rejoicing, now we have Jesus rejoicing. And this is a big deal because you don't really see Jesus rejoicing that much. I mean, there are, uh, you, you kind of get an idea that he's in a good place, that he's happy, but 
there's only two places where it literally says Jesus rejoiced, like in, in all of scripture. And so this is a big deal. But notice that it says Jesus, he's rejoicing in the Holy Spirit. So the rejoicing that's taking place in the NASB, it says he rejoiced greatly. In the NIV, it says Jesus was full of joy. So it's not just this tiny joy that he's experienced. He's overwhelmed, overflowed with joy. And that joy is coming from where? The Holy Spirit. In the Holy Spirit, Jesus is able to experience this joy. But why? Like what is causing Jesus to rejoice in such a way? It says in verse 21, of heaven and earth. In other words, you are the king of heaven and earth. You rule it all. You're sovereign God. That you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Such was your gracious will. Now, this is a confusing verse in the beginning because it says God is absolutely sovereign. He controls everything in this world. And yet, it might bother you because it says that something was hidden from the wise and the understanding, but it was revealed to little children. Later on, Jesus actually says in verse 22, all things have been handed over to me by the Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, and, and, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. In other words, it, without Jesus... Without him choosing people, there's no way that we can know the Father. And there's no way that we can know the Son. That's what Jesus is saying. And it might bother us. This is why people have a hard time processing predestination, like God's sovereign rule and his will. Are people pre-selected to go to heaven? Isn't that kind of unfair? Isn't that unjust if what we do in this life is already predetermined, uh, that the outcome is already set? Like, what, How do we make sense of this verse? And I don't think this verse is really getting to that question. I don't think it's trying to tell you that, hey, no matter what you do in this life, that you're kind of like, you, you don't really have a choice. I don't think that's what this, this verse is saying. I think it's highlighting the gracious will of the Father. Notice that Jesus says, this is the gracious will of the Father. What is so gracious about the will of the Father? These things that were hidden, the things about Jesus, the works of Jesus, the fact that Jesus is the God, that, that he is the Savior, Messiah, that he's going to go to the cross and be the Savior for the entire world, and, and whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. The very fact that Jesus is the one and that we can believe in the one, these things are hidden from the wise and the understanding, but it's revealed to little children. Who are the wise? Who are the understanding? These are the people who are self-sufficient. These are the people who don't need anyone else to tell them what to do. These are the people who have everything figured out. They know everything. They know what to do in life. They don't need life advice from other people. They are self-sufficient. And what Jesus says is this. If you are living in pride, self-sufficiency, if you are considering yourself wise and understanding in a way that you have everything figured out about life and you don't need God, then these things are hidden to you. But if you are like a little child, that's like a blank slate, that you're willing to take Jesus' word for what it is. Believe it with a pure heart, with a childlike faith. If you are so dependent like a child, I'm noticing this, man, really, the word child here is really baby. It's, it's, it's like the word infant. Like babies are so dependent. 
Like, I literally can't leave my baby. Like, Luke, uh, it's like you always have to hold him. You have to make sure he's breathing. Even when he's sleeping, you have to make sure that, you know, he's not doing it, anything to himself. He can't even hold his head, 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 head straight because his head is so big compared to his neck. Like, his hands, like, he's still, like, kind of flimsy. He can't control his arms and his legs. He can't feed himself. He, he can't do things on his own. He can't even move around on his own. All he can do is cry for help. And what God is saying is this, those who are so dependent, those who are so desperate for someone's help, for those who are in so much need and you recognize that need like a little child and you call upon the name of the Lord, these things are revealed to you. How great is that? The neglected, the, the least of society, little children, that God remembers them because of his gracious will now jesus could have said at this point and i thank you father because my disciples they made the right choice they're, they're on the right track like they're doing the right thing like they finally understood it like they got it they prayed the right prayer they're living the right life and he could have celebrated the decision of the disciples but rather jesus he's not celebrating the decision of the disciples he's saying behind that decision to follow me i know it's your gracious will and your sovereign hand. Like, before they chose me, you have chosen them. Like, how does that work fully? I have no idea. It's the mystery of salvation where God's sovereignty and human responsibility go hand in hand. But one thing that I do know absolutely is that if God did not, out of his good, gracious, sovereign will, choose to reveal himself to me and make a way for me by sending his son to die for me, there's no way that I can call upon his name and enter into his presence. It begins with God's sovereign grace. It really requires us to respond in, in, in humility and obedience. And the two go hand in hand. But what Jesus is saying is this, behind the work of salvation is the God of salvation. And that's why you should rejoice. That you have a God who is so gracious and good that he does not neglect the weak in this world. Just think about society. If you have something hidden, who's, who's, who are the people who have the hidden information, the inside information? It's the powerful. It's the one in position. It's the one who are wise and understanding that they would use that hidden information for their own sake, for their benefit, for, 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 for their glory. And yet, Jesus, although he has all things that are hidden, instead of using that to exalt himself, he uses that to save people. That he uses those that hidden things and he reveals it to children, little children, like you and me. So the only reason why you and I are saved is because we have a gracious God, the God of salvation, who chose to reveal himself to us through the Son. And that's why we rejoice, that we know Jesus, that he made a way for us. And so Luke 10, says, all things have been handed over to me, Jesus, by my Father. In other words, Jesus has ultimate authority. And not only that, but he reveals God perfectly because no one can know the Father apart from the Son, and the Son is the one who chooses to whom things are revealed. And I love it. And it says in verse 22 and 23, turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desire to see what you see and do not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. So the mystery that is revealed to us through Jesus is something that people long to see and hear. And yet, we are here today openly speaking of the gospel. That, that's a 
position of privilege that we have in salvation. So we rejoice in our salvation. We also rejoice in the God of our salvation. So how do we apply a text like this? I just want to give you two quick application points. Number one is this. Just remember, in your life, as you are following Jesus, yes, you can celebrate the victories that you have in your life, but always remember that what you have in Jesus Christ, your eternal security is far greater than any success you'll have in this world. And so rejoice, not in what you do, but who you are in Jesus Christ, that you are loved, that you are blessed, that you are remembered, that you have been saved by God's grace. And that's going to be the fuel for your faithfulness in the highs and the lows. You know that at the end of the day, God is going to be faithful to you, that he's going to lead you to glory. So instead of getting too caught up in the success of life, in the numbers of life, in the outcomes of life. Just notice that, that Jesus, at least, he's not, he's not evaluating you based on your performance. He's, he's loving you based on what he has done for you. Um, I think the second way that we can remember this is, is if Jesus rejoiced in the salvation of others, so should we. Like, Jesus noticed that he's so selfless that he's, he's rejoicing in the salvation of the disciples, God's gracious will towards the disciples. And do we understand that God also, also has a gracious will towards the nations, towards our neighbors, that he has this plan to love on those who are neglected in society, that he wants to bring the good news to those? And the means in which he reveals that good news is what? Well, Jesus is no longer here, but he left his church. The body of Christ was chosen to be the messenger that reveals the glory of the Father. And so just like Jesus came to reveal the glory of the Father so that people would come to this saving knowledge and, and believe and follow Jesus Christ in the same way God has left us on earth. Why? So that we would accomplish God's gracious will. And so as we celebrate the gift of salvation and remember the God of salvation, we rejoice greatly. We rejoice in our own salvation, rejoice in the salvation of others. Following Jesus is hard work, but at the very end, this is kind of the bookmark of this section, chapter 9, 10, about discipleship. Jesus just wants you to know, at the end of the day, following Jesus, embracing his mission is hard work, but it brings joy. Joy to the Father and joy to our hearts. Amen? Let's pray.